we'll go ahead and jump into the lesson. We're looking at the book of Acts, and we're moving on to Acts 6 and 7. Speaking of Stephen, he was a witness for Christ. And God greatly used him. We'll pick it up just for a moment in Acts 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. Then there arose certain of the synagogue, which is called the synagogue of the Libertines and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and of them of Cilicia and Asia, disputing with Stephen... And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now that's a neat verse. Think about that. They were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. Now you stop there. And if you know what comes next in Acts chapter 7, it might seem like what? Does Acts 7 contradict Acts 6 verse 10? Because what happens in Acts chapter 7? He's dead. They take him out. He becomes the first martyr and uh, his blood is shed at the feet of Saul who becomes Apostle Paul. Uh, And so it would seem like they did resist. Did they not? They resisted the work of the Spirit. They rejected the work of the Lord. But Acts 10, I'm sorry, Acts 6 verse 10 says they were not able to resist. So what's uh, what's the answer there? What do you think? How do we resolve this? Obviously, there's no contradictions in Scripture. So what's it talking about? It's kind of like, just picture, if you have kids or nieces or nephews or whatever, picture them about, you got a four-year-old and you got a seven-year-old. And seven-year-old is real smart and four-year-old not quite so smart. But uh, they're having this little argument that turns into a fight. And the seven-year-old just has a lot more wisdom of words. And the four-year-old just can't quite keep up with the intellect. And so what do they do? Pow! You know, just reach out and knock them one. I know I did that with my older brother, you know. You, can, you might be able to talk more than me, but I got two fists and you're about to wear them. Boom! You know, uh, that's kind of what happened here. They... We're not able to resist in the sense that they could not match intellect for intellect what he was saying. They could not defeat what he was saying from Scripture. They could not prove him wrong. Uh, they could not take down his arguments. So what they do? They just took down the guy. And that is as old as it gets, right? We've been doing that since preschool. <laughs> and we just get more sophisticated with that as, the, as we get older. Um, but it's a neat verse. He was a man that was used by God, full of faith and power. God used him in such a way that they could not resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. And we should also be able to take from that some encouragement that even if we are being rejected, like he will be in Acts chapter 7, we can come away knowing it's not all lost. I mean, they, they might be rejecting because they can't resist. In other words, they, they can't prove you wrong and God is breaking through. A lot of times, um, it's either revival or riot. You know, you, they break through and there's a revival. People saved, thousands saved in Acts 2 and 4. And then you come to Acts chapter 6 and 7 and it's the riot. But in either case, they are gripped with conviction by the Holy Spirit. We'll keep reading. Uh, so he, they couldn't resist. Then verse 11, they suborned men which said, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes and came upon him and caught him and brought him to the council and set up false witnesses which said, this man ceaseth not to speak blasphemous words against this holy place and the law. Now think about the irony of this. They are getting rid of him because they would say they love the holy place and they love the law. And this guy teaches contrary. Um, 
But in order to do it, they had to set up false witnesses, which is totally against their law. The Bible says a false witness is an abomination. And it was kind of the end justifies the means. We need to get rid of this guy, so we're going to break our own law that we're supposedly fighting for. They set up false witnesses. We've heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth shall destroy this place and shall change the customs which Moses delivered to us. And all that, is, and all that sat in the council looking upon, steadfastly upon him saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And then they made a mistake. Know what mistake they made? Look at verse 1. What did they do? They asked him a question. <laughs> you shouldn't have asked him a question because he goes on and on and on for 60 verses. You know, not, not quite 60, but uh, all the way to verse 53. And he preaches them a message. And it's a powerful, powerful message. They ask him, are these things so? And he says, men and brethren. And boom, off he goes with this gospel message and history lesson and everything that was uh, used of the Lord. And he witnesses of Christ. Well, we are looking at lesson seven. A witness makes a difference. God sent Jesus, and then Jesus gathered 12 apostles, and then those apostles multiplied. I think that is uh, talked about that in chapter six and verse seven. The numbers of the disciples multiplied in Jerusalem greatly. They're multiplying. And what did Jesus call them several different times? He called them witnesses. In Luke 24, uh, he says, Ye are witnesses of these things. And then in Acts 1.8, Ye shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and the uttermost part of the earth. Witnesses. What is significant about the term witness or witnesses? What are, what's significant about that? Is anybody who goes around with a message a witness? Like, for instance, those who sell newspapers, are they witnesses? No. First-hand knowledge. Exactly. First-hand knowledge. We're not just newspaper boys. News, news, got news, got news. No, we are the guys who were there. We're the one, forget the newspaper, we're the ones who were eyewitnesses who were saying, I was there and it happened like this and here's blah, 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 blah. Okay, a witness is, is, is uh, uh, so much closer to the action there. Uh, the, dic the, the dictionary defines the term in three ways, three parts. Attestation of a fact or event, one who had personal knowledge of something or the event, Someone who's called to give evidence in court. And we can use that for our purposes. We have been called to attest to the facts of the Lord's sacrifice on the cross, his victory, his, his death, uh, uh, and his willingness to save us through his blood. Those of us who've been saved have a personal knowledge of his saving power. We can give our testimony. And if someone says, hey, sh share your testimony. Uh, you say, what is my testimony? My testimony is what Jesus did for me. It's the first-hand account of what Jesus did for me. And just think of it like this. Um, if you were being tried in court, could you be convicted, found guilty of being a Christian by your testimony? Could you sit there, take the oath, you know, sit there and say, I am a Christian and here is why, okay? Here's my story. Hopefully we'd be able to do that. Uh, our lives are intended to bear evidence of our relationship with Christ in the courtroom of everyday life. Our lives are, are a lesson uh, and a testimony. And so it was with Stephen, who, is, uh, who we're going to be looking at here this evening. We'll look first at his character. The character of the man, Stephen. In chapter 6, verse 8 through verse 10, we see, first of all, these full of faith. And Stephen, full of faith and power, did great wonders and miracles among the people. I want to read a couple of things straight out of the book because it was worded so well. I don't want to mess this up. So listen here as I read a couple, a couple paragraphs. People who lack faith conclude that God could not or would not use them as a witness. 
Uh, you've probably done this. I've done this. I know I've done this. You, if you lack faith, you can just conclude that God could not or would not use me as a witness. Or they believe, even if he could use me, people wouldn't listen to me. Now Moses thought that, and Jonah thought that, and hundreds, thousands of others have thought that. On the other hand, a person of faith says, God can use me, and some people will listen. Um, Brother White was saying today, uh, every time, he said, every time I go out and witness, you know, that we always find someone who's ready. And it has to do with the, the way in which we go out. If you go out like, oh, here we go again. No one's going to want to hear this. I'm interrupting everybody's day. It's like you're, you're determined to not succeed. But when you go out full of faith, Lord, there's someone here who you have prepared. Lead me. The Lord loves to answer that prayer. The level of confidence you have in God determines how likely you are to witness for him. The level of confidence you have in God determines how likely you are to witness for him. And so why don't we witness? Let's just throw that out there. Why don't you witness? Why don't I witness? Why don't we witness? What are the things that we all deal with that are excuses or reasons for why we don't witness? Just throw them out. Not enough time? Yep, certainly. Fear. Fear of rejection, fear. Absolutely, what else? Fired from the job? And we do need wisdom. When you're, when you're work, uh, working a job, you, you certainly need wisdom in that. Um, I do have a friend who was fired from his job uh, for witnessing on the job. And, and the interesting thing about that is the guy who hired him was a Christian. And every Christian he ever hired, including me, he said, I expect you to be a witness here. But you have to get your job done. And so you have to witness in breaks or in, in, you got to get creative, but you have to get your job done. Well, my buddy would not do his job. He would just stand there and witness to another guy who was doing his job, do it all day long, and he got written up several times and got fired by a Christian. A Christian fired a Christian, but what are you going to do? Okay, so you need wisdom. You need wisdom in that, and God will give you wisdom. He says, he promises that. If any man lack wisdom, let him ask of God, all right? And he'll give it liberally. But why else, what are some other reasons we don't witness? So there's one I'm still looking for, for sure. Maybe, maybe several, but one I'm thinking of. We don't know. That was when I was, that's where I was headed. We say, I don't know what to say. Maybe we don't know the gospel. We don't know the verses. Or we're just self-conscious, right? And, and we say, I don't have the personality. I don't have the experience. I don't have the knowledge. I, I don't have the upbringing in church like everybody else has, right? It's one of the key ones. Now, here's, here's what the lesson points out. Some Christians don't witness because they lack confidence in their knowledge or skill. Now, what does that reveal, though? What does that reveal about your trust? Where's your dependence? In yourself. I'm not going to witness because I don't have the knowledge, I don't have the skill, and I don't have the experience. So, what does that tell us? It tells us, if God gave you the knowledge, gave you the wisdom, gave you the skill and the experience, you'd probably be self-dependent. And I've been there too. I've been on both sides of this. I don't know what I'm doing. And hey, I think I finally know what I'm doing. Uh, boom, you crash and burn on that one. Uh, but, but many of us don't witness because our confidence is in ourself. True Christian witnessing begins not with confidence in self, but with confidence in God. And I'll tell you, I have seen some of the most unlikely witnesses. I mean, the most unlikely witnesses. I've seen kids at these youth events I would preach for. They're saved five minutes, and they're witnessing to their mom when mom picks them up. And I'm nervous as all get out. They go, I hope this goes over well. Mom, mom, I got saved today, and you need to get saved. Mom, if you don't get saved, you're going to go to hell. You're a sinner. Mom, I see you smoke and you swear and you kick the dog. And you know, they're going, I'm like, oh, kid, come on. Take it easy on mom. This kid, this kid can preach a message here. And uh, you're pleading with mom. And, 
And sometimes it goes over well, sometimes not so well. Uh, then again, I'm like, well, this kid has more faith than me. I'm over, I'm over here wringing my hands and, and kids save five minutes and witnessing to their parent. I saw that several times. No ability, no experience, no training, no nothing, but confident in God. And the God who saved me can save my mom, and boom, off they go. Self-confident Christians find their efforts unproductive because confidence in self will eliminate confidence in God. So I just want to say right off the bat, as we talk about witnessing makes a difference, it does not matter what your personality is. It does not matter what your education is, what your experience is. Uh, We've already covered this, but in Acts chapter 4, they marveled at the disciples because they were unlearned and ignorant men. They were just ignorant fishermen, but they took knowledge of them that they had been with Jesus. What makes a good witness is not so much book knowledge, though I'm not against the book knowledge. I I think that's just tools in the tool chest. Read books on being a witness, sharing your faith. Sure, take a course, take netcasters. We've done netcasters here uh, a couple of times. Take all those courses, but those are just adding tools to the toolbox. The real essence of witnessing is your walk with God that spills over. Uh, most of you, I think most of you know our missionary, Tom Johnson. I think pretty much all of you know, and if you don't know him, he's on the backboard with our missionaries, and he'll come through again, Lord willing, at some point. But uh, he's one of those guys. He witnesses everywhere he goes to the point where it gets annoying if you're with him for the day. You can't get where you're trying to go. Uh, you're with Dr. Tom and over with him in Cambo- uh, ca- uh, Cambodia. I always get Cameroon and Cambodia mixed up. I'm with him in Cambodia, and we had like five or six churches we were supposed to preach in on a Sunday. And he's driving, and it's me and him going to all these back nooks and crannies to preach. But every time we would bump into a person, I knew I'm going to sit here and wait. And he has this, he has a folder about this big with laminated pictures, and it's his Cambodian gospel tract, his Cambodian flip book, gospel flip book. He never leaves the house without it, and he bumps into someone, he's like, hey, here, here, let me show you this, Jesus Christ. And of course, I can't understand what he's saying because he's talking in the other language, but I would just sit there and pray, Lord, help this guy to get it and get saved. And then, you know, uh, sometimes they get saved, sometimes they wouldn't, and we'd be moving on. But he would just spill over everywhere he went. And I'll say one thing about him, and I've seen him do it here in the States as well. That's just how he is. He, you can hardly walk down the road with the guy without him sharing the gospel with someone. Uh, he, he does not impress you with his incredible personality or his incredible intellect or any of those things. Sorry, Dr. Tom, if you're watching. Uh, I think you're a smart guy, really. Uh, but he, he, that's not what impresses you. If anything, you're, you're just impressed by the fact that this guy just spills over. He's so full of the Lord, so full of, uh, of the passion to share the gospel, it just comes out of him. Uh, and, and he's, as, as we're talking about here, full of faith. He's just full of faith that there's going to be people who will hear. I've given this illustration before, but I've got to give it again. You know, he gets a, a flat tire, and so he pulls off the highway onto a little one of those... Uh, one of those little pull-offs for a crash investigation site or something like that. And the first thing he does is he says, wow, we have a flat tire. I wonder who God's going to have me witness to. Like, I don't think that. I'm thinking, no, a flat tire. How long is this going to take? How am I going to get this done? How am I going to be on time? Ah, yeah, that's, that's kind of how my thought pattern goes. He gets out of the car, doesn't even look at the flat he gets out of the car to look and see, is there anyone else parked here that God wants me to? Sure enough, there's another car parked right there. God wants me to witness to her. And he runs up to the lady and leads her to Christ. And somebody else changes the flat tire. So hey, it worked, it worked out fine. And back on the road. Um, you know, that, that is, that, that, that's the eye of faith. Everything happens for a reason and God knows my schedule and God just delayed me. There has to be something he wants me to do. And he gets out of the car, look, and there's the, there's the one. I'm going to witness to her. 
full of faith. Well, well, Stephen, Stephen was full of faith. And what else it says? Full of power. Full of power. Whose power? It's the power of God. 2 Corinthians 4, 7 says, but we have this treasure in earthen vessels that the excellency of the power may be of God and not of us. If you and I yield to the Holy Spirit, we can accomplish things that only God can do through us. As opposed to just what we can do in our own best efforts. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to have a life that is explainable on a human level. I want to have a life that, that someone says, boy, God had to have done that. And God had to have done that. Our power is found in the Holy Spirit. Not by might, not, nor by power, but by my spirit, saith the Lord of hosts. He was a man who was uh, known as a man full of faith, full of power. And also, he was one who had irresistible wisdom and irresistible spirit. I think I forgot a couple of blanks. So full of faith, full of power, if you're, if you're taking notes there. Irresistible wisdom is the third one. There arose, Acts 6-9, certain in the synagogue, and it says who these guys are, disputing with Stephen. And they were not able to resist the wisdom and the spirit by which he spake. So apparently, Stephen did put some time in the word. Now, again, I already established kids who are saved five minutes can witness. So what I'm going to say now, I don't want you to fall back and say, oh, I don't have enough wisdom, I can't witness. But the point is, this you ought to do and not to let the other one undone, right? Uh, so uh, you can be saved five minutes and witness just fine, but as you have opportunity, get in the Word. Add tools to the toolbox. And it says here that as he was disputing in the, in the, uh, the synagogue there, they were silenced. They were flustered. They, they could not resist the wisdom by which he spake. As he gives this history lesson in Acts chapter 7, everything he puts out there was, was, was accurate and, and uh, guided by the Spirit of God. He had, he had irresistible wisdom. We can pray for wisdom. God says, if you pray for wisdom, he will give it liberally. And I don't know about you, but I need liberal wisdom. Uh, a lot of it. Letter D, also irresistible spirit. To be able to witness in a secular and hostile culture, it requires both godly wisdom and an excellent spirit. And uh, he says, uh, I'm sorry, Proverbs says, a man of understanding has an excellent spirit. Both Joseph and D Daniel are examples of this. Men who went before, who had an excellent spirit. Daniel 6, 3, because an excellent spirit was in him and the king sought to set him over the whole realm. You know, our testimony will either undermine our witness or it will undergird it. And Daniel was a man who had a, a testimony, a spirit about him that, that undergirded what he was saying. And it's interesting there. It says that his face was as the face of an angel. And that was not just the fact that he was a baby-faced young man. That, you know, no, that was, he seemed to glow with the presence of God. And I, I've given this illustration before, but I, I remember... When I was preaching in Chicago, I was preaching outside in the open air, and I was preaching along, and there's just people streaming by. You don't hardly notice anyone individually. They're, 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 they'd collect for a while, and they'd go, and they'd come around. And There was one guy, I saw him way down the, 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 the sidewalk, and as soon as I saw him, I just noticed that guy looks different. His face seemed to beam. And he was smiling and looking at me and coming. I thought, he's going to come talk to me. And he came all the way up and I stopped preaching to go talk to this guy. And uh, he was a church planter in Chicago who worked his day job in the building across from where I was preaching. And every lunch he would come out and he would street preach where I was. And he was so thrilled to find someone else preaching the gospel on his corner. And I, I, you could pick his face out of the crowd. It was, it was something. I was like, I know he's a Christian. And, and sure enough, Baptist church planner there in Chicago. Uh, uh, and we had a good fellowship. Uh, but there's sometimes it's something about people's spirit 
that even uh, emanates from their face. We need to make sure that we are asking the Lord for victory with our testimony. You know, Al mentioned unsaved co-workers and unsaved parents and relatives and so forth. Uh, you know, the, the, the main, one of the main things that's going to help us with unsaved relatives and co-workers is, uh, as Stephen, to have an excellent spirit. In other words, our attitude and our testimony undergirds uh, what we're trying to say. And so let's pray about that. Let's make that a real, a real matter of focused prayer that we'd walk with the Lord in that regard. So we see the character, the character of the man, Stephen. <clears throat> let's see, secondly, the contradiction of the mob. And chapter 6 talks about this, how they set up, uh, set up false accusers. Uh, the false accusers came in Acts 6.11 and they suborned men which said, we've heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and against God. These were hypocrites. They claimed to keep the law and yet they broke the law in order to get rid of Stephen. And you see this all the way through the Bible. Jezebel hired false witnesses against Naboth in order to get his vineyard. The chief priests and elders had hired false witnesses against Jesus and Matthew. Paul would face false witnesses in Acts 24. In other words, the devil will do whatever he has to do to try to discredit and, and uh, detract from what God wants to do. Human nature sometimes prefers religious or cultural customs over the truth of God's word, and so it was here. We don't want you, Stephen. We just want our traditions. We want our thing move along. And yet, Stephen says, no, I'm going to teach you the truth, because that's, the, the, uh, that's where the power is. Uh, back to, I already got to it, but we'll hit it again, I kind of got out of order here. Um, so we looked at the, the false of accusers, but secondly, let it be the face of an angel. <clears throat> and all that sat in the council looked steadfastly on him, saw his face as it had been the face of an angel. And again, this is just his, his walk with the Lord that was emanating from him. You see this also in Exodus 34, 30, <clears throat> when Aaron and all the children of Israel saw Moses, behold, the skin of his face shone, and they were afraid to come nigh unto him. When you have been in the presence of God, people can see that. It makes an impact. And people are drawn to it. People are, are wanting to know truth, and they're looking for reality. 1 Peter 2.23 says, Who, when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. Jesus also had that radiance as he faced the cross. So God help us. Uh, when we face those who would contradict, those who would try to uh, uh, defeat the message, you can't, you can't let that discourage you. I have faced my own little bit of this. I haven't faced a mob like this. I mean, that's, that's a, a bad deal uh, if you do. But I have faced certainly those who were not, um, not receptive. And uh, usually what it means is Satan's fighting and because you're, you're actually getting through. You're actually uh, being used to the Lord. I remember doing the cola clash. I think uh, we did that for about six years in evangelism. And sometimes you'd have a kid who would be heckling you in the crowd. And I would usually let it go. I, I would not call the kid out because I would just make it a bigger deal. I certainly didn't want to have a challenge. Okay, you and me, buddy, you know, let's go at it from the pulpit. I would usually just let it go and just keep preaching and just look to the Lord and try to just forget about the kid who's heckling and just say, Lord, help me to be so... Uh, in love with you, that this doesn't even bother me. I can't take it personally. If I ever took it personally, oh boy, I'd get in the flesh and I would just destroy the message. I just remember they're, they're not heckling me, they're heckling you, Lord. And so I would just try to preach more earnestly and be filled with the Spirit. And I could tell you over and over and over again, all of a sudden that kid would just get quiet. And all the kids who were laughing, oh, they, they get quiet. I remember one time I was preaching and the whole, the whole group was just really restless and stuff going on. And it was as though, I got to one point in the message, it was as though 
like, it literally seemed, the way I remember it, it seemed like something swept through the crowd from right to left. These kids got quiet. These kids got quiet. These kids got quiet, and it was all quiet. That's how I remember it. It might not have happened just like that, but it was like the Lord just moved in. Everyone got quiet, and the message broke through. Uh, and I know, I'm not going to say I had the face of an angel. Wouldn't go that far. But nonetheless, the presence of God. That's what that is. It is the presence of God. And people, when they are confronted with his presence, boy, that, 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 will, that, that can, can break through. Let's look at number three here, the content of his message. We're not going to read all of Acts chapter 7 uh, because it is a long passage. I'd encourage you, though, to read it on your own. But he defended his position as a follower in Christ. He filled his message with Scripture. It was historically accurate, and he built an airtight case for Jesus as the Messiah. I'll just review very uh, quickly here. Um, the next point, the review of their history. That's how he starts. He reviews their history. He starts in, in verses 2 through 8 with the faith of Abraham. Verses 9 through 17, the trials of Joseph. 18 and 19, the bondage in Egypt. Verses 20 through 36, the deliverance by Moses. Verses 37 to 43, the disobedience of the Jews. And then finishes out his message with the purpose of the tabernacle and the temple. And uh, how does this relate? Well, Abraham followed in faith without the presence of a temple. Joseph, like Jesus, was rejected by his brethren, and Stephen would be too. The people rebelled against Moses and the prophets in favor of idolatry. And he's reminding them of all this in his message. And then he makes sure to let them know that a relationship with God is not based on a building which is very similar to what Jesus said to the woman of the well. Jesus told her, The hour cometh and now is when true worshipers shall worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father seeketh such to worship him. So he goes through this history because he knew they knew the Bible and it's the word of God that's going to convict. Uh, boy, that's something I've learned as well as I have been preaching and, and whenever I have given the gospel and I get into some sideline argument. My intellect against their intellect, it never goes anywhere. But if I can keep bringing it back to the Scripture, keep bringing it back to the Scripture, the gospel is the power of God and the salvation. So he went through their history, and then he exposed their hypocrisy. <clears throat> ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. Wow. As your fathers did, so do ye. You know, we don't, we don't hear this kind of preaching much anymore. This is application right here. This is, this is what we call shucking the corn. That's what they used to say down south. Well, he shucked the corn today. That preacher, he got after it. Uh, he just put it to him. Ye stiff-necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears, ye do always resist the Holy Ghost. As your fathers did, so do ye. Which of the prophets have, your fathers, have not your fathers persecuted? And have slain them which showed before the coming of the just one, of whom ye have been now the betrayers and murderers. He said, they slew the ones who foretold by prophecy the coming of the Messiah. Who you now have actually acted upon it. Who have received the law by the disposition of angels and have not kept it. So he turns his message from their history to pointing out their hypocrisy. He did not hesitate to point out their guilt. One thing about witnessing that we have to remember is though it's not fun, you do have to preach the law and point out sin. The Bible says that the law is the schoolmaster to bring them to Christ. When I went over to Ireland for the first time, and I, I just began preaching. All the preaching was in the open air. We didn't have a church. We started a church when we were there. We got a building when we were there. But at the beginning, church was at the gazebo in the green in the center of town. And the uh, first couple of message I, messages I preached, I was just scared to death. I'm in a strange country with uh, drunken Irishmen. I mean, the green was between two pubs. 
they were all partially inebriated pretty much all the time. And I just got cold feet about preaching hot against sin and hell. And so I remember putting together a message on the love of God. And I just waxed eloquent on the love of God and everybody walked away. Like I, I, the, whatever crowd I had, just boom, gone. And I was so discouraged. And I said to the pastors, David O'Gorman was there. Oriel O'Gorman is the guy who's my age who, who actually pastored the church. But I said to Pastor Dave, I said, brother, what did I do? And he says, well, John, you can't just preach the love of God. I said, you can't? He says, no. The love of God only pops off the canvas as you paint it against the backdrop of sin and hell. I've never forgotten that. I thought, that's what I did. I, 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 I botched the painting. <laughs> you know, They couldn't see the love of God. It just blended in. Because the love of God only pops off the canvas as you paint it against the backdrop of sin and hell. Well, how do we get people to see their sin? You have to talk about the law, the laws of the schoolmaster to bring us to Christ. You have to be willing to do what Stephen did, which is he pointed out the need of their heart. He pointed out the sin that they had committed and how they needed, uh, they needed to be delivered. One commentator put it this way, they accused him of reviling the holy place. He accused them of resisting the Holy Ghost. They accused him of slighting Moses, the man of God. He accused them of slaying Jesus, the Messiah of God. They accused him of blaspheming the law. He accused them of breaking the law. When we are witnessing of Jesus Christ to be a witness we must, in love, with full faith and, and a spirit of wisdom and all of that, we need to expose the guilt of the sinner. Now, we can't expose it ourselves. The Spirit of God has to do that. But, but we need to uh, preach in a way that the Spirit of God can use His Word to expose the need of their heart. We should not sugarcoat the fact that all are sinners. We should not sugarcoat the fact that we're condemned already, that there is a judgment, there's a place called hell. Uh, no, we need to recognize that until a sinner realizes his guilt, he will not see a reason to turn to Christ. Going back to David O'Gorman, as he was talking to me about painting the love of Christ against that backdrop of, of sin and hell, uh, he said, you know, you told them what they've been telling themselves their whole lives. I said, what was that? God loves me, I love me, everybody loves me, it's a good day. And they just kind of walked away. <laughs> I thought, oh no, bummer. Uh, that's what I did. And I changed my message after that. I, I didn't make that mistake again, thank the Lord. Um, yeah, the, the, the love of God only makes sense if he sees his guilt. And then he'll see the reason to turn to Christ. Why do you need forgiveness if you're not a sinner? This is the key function of the law to expose the guilt of the sinner and the resulting need for Jesus Christ. The Bible says in Romans 3.19, Now we know that what things soever the law saith, it saith to them that are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and that all the world may become guilty before God. So he exposed their hypocrisy after pointing out their history. And then <clears throat> we see thirdly the conviction of their hearts. When they heard these things, <clears throat> Acts 7, 40, 54, they were cut to the heart and they gnashed on him with their teeth. You, want to, you ask, what does conviction look like? Well, it can look like this. It doesn't always look like this, but it can look like this. They were so upset. I have seen con some great conviction where people got saved. And that's amazing. And I remember, I remember being with this kid and after the message he wanted to talk and he couldn't talk, he was just blubbering. He's just crying. I kept asking him questions and he'd try to talk and he couldn't, he's just blubbering. And I mean, he was, he was leaking out his eyeballs, his nose, his mouth. I found a mop bucket that was sitting in the corner 
And I moved the whole mop bucket underneath him so he could just do what he needed to do in the mop bucket. And he just wept. And I finally figured out what he was under conviction about and his sin and so forth. We talked about it and he got saved. That was neat to see him come through. And then I've seen him go the other way. They get convicted and they get angry. And they turn on you. But you have to remember in that moment, they're not turning on you, they're turning on Jesus. And if you take it personally, you will make things worse. And also, you will give them an easier conscience about what they did. If they yell at you, if they hit you, or whatever happens, if you remain like him with the face of an angel, just, you know, just, just loving God, um, they have that on their conscience. They know that they're convicted, that they're a sinner. But he, he, he saw conviction. They came after him. They gnashed on him with their teeth. They were convicted, but they were not converted. Just like King Agrippa. King Agrippa was convicted, but not converted. He said, almost, Paul, almost thou persuadest me to be a, a Christian. We, we preach the gospel in the power of the Spirit. We can trust that the Lord will bring conviction. And many times, conversion. Uh, but, but don't be discouraged if there is a rejection. One mistake that Christians make is when there is this kind of reaction, we second guess and say, we did something wrong. I remember being in Carrollton, Illinois, with Minutemen Ministries, and that was when Jim Van Geldren received the permission to do something that he had never received permission to do since this time. He's done it many times, but he got permission to preach and hold his meetings in a public school in Carrollton High School, Carrollton, Illinois. Now, we would do this program in Christian schools, walk the halls, sit with the kids, eat with the kids, play games, preach the gospel, but we had never done it in a public school. And I'll tell you, they invited us in and said, run your full program here. Do your chapels, do everything. Now, we couldn't do chapel during school hours. We had to do it afterwards. But still, it, it, it felt so weird to be in the school carrying my Bible around and talking with students. I was like, this feels like a Christian school. It's a public school. This is nuts. And everything was going so good until we had our first evening rally. And all these kids came, and boy, Dr. Jim preached his heart out, and me and the other team members were praying. He gives the invitation for kids to respond, and not one kid would move. Now, my position was I was in the back counseling room where all these kids were going to come. We had gospel literature for them. We had workers who would meet with them. I remember just sitting there looking at that door, wait, wondering, is any kid going to come through that door? And finally, as I'm sitting here, every, I, I noticed things kind of got dark. And I looked up, and there's this hulking football player who filled up that whole door. He was the first guy to come through that door. He got saved, and I, I don't know how many kids came in after him and got saved. We were flying high. We we're just like, oh, this is amazing. We just saw God break through in a public school. And all the kids went home, and we were so happy, and we went out to get some fresh air, and a car pulls in, and a mom and a dad come out, their teenage daughter, who had moved out of their house to move in with her boyfriend, both high school seniors. Her and her boyfriend got saved and decided that they needed to split up. That happened quick, like in, in one night. They're figuring that this is wrong. And so she goes back to mom and dad and says, uh, this isn't right, and I got saved at this event, and blah, blah, blah. And mom and dad just hit the fan. They got in the car. They pulled up. They got out. I thought for sure that that big old boy was going to punch Dr. Jim in the next week. I mean, he reared back a couple of times. He never did strike. The, th the words that came out of his mouth, the whole scene, and then they left. And uh, nobody, no one on our team could speak. It was just like we got kicked in the stomach. And then this girl comes over and says, I heard that whole thing. I'm so sorry. What you have meant to our school can't even be spoken. You've helped me so much. Don't worry about them. They're always cranky. They're always crabby. Just you guys keep doing what you're doing. 
And I remember none of us hardly slept that night. We thought for sure, he, he said, I'm going to go to the school board. I'm going to the police. I'm going to get you guys out of here or locked up. He made all these threats. We thought tomorrow morning it's over. Come to find out, we came in the next day, welcomed with open arms. Everybody was happy to have us there. And the thing went on and it finished and many kids got saved that week. It was just one little outburst. Sometimes that's what Satan, all he has. And if you buy it, you take an early exit and you miss out on everything else God wanted to do. Uh, conviction can erupt, but we should expect conviction and recognize that God is working. In that case, God was working. We just needed to continue to trust him. I'm, all, I'm out of time. Let me hit the last couple here. Uh, the, so we had the content of the message and then finally the climax of the meeting. And it ends with him being stoned to death. But I want you to notice in verse 55 of chapter 7 that the Savior stood. The Savior stood. But he, being full of the Holy Ghost, looked up steadfastly into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing on the right hand of God and said, Behold, I see the heavens opened and the Son of Man standing on the right hand of God. And then he went to meet him. We have to remember God's on our side. When you go to witness to somebody, you might be scared to death. But God is on your side. God stood for Stephen and stood with Stephen. And what does the Bible say? If God be for us, who can be against us? Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Don't let fear of what might happen remove you from the victory side. You standing with God, God standing with you. Christ knows what you're doing. He sees you witnessing. And the next letter B the scoffers stoned him. They cried with a loud voice and stopped their ears and ran upon him with one accord and cast him out of the city and stoned him. They rejected him because of their hard hearts. We have to recognize that's going to happen sometimes. Hopefully not the stoning. That could happen too. But the rejection, certainly. And uh, it doesn't change the fact that the gospel is the power of God. The gospel, was, the gospel power was evidenced here. You say, why didn't we have gospel power in Acts 7 when we had in Acts 2 and Acts 4? This was powerful. The gospel was so powerful these people were willing to take a man's life. The scoffers will scoff. <clears throat> but we need to recognize that even in that, God's power is shown. And let us see, Saul studied him. The witnesses laid down their clothes at a young man's feet whose name was Saul. Acts 22.20, Paul recounts this and he says this, And the blood of thy martyr Stephen, when it was shed, I also was standing by and consenting unto his death and kept the raiment of them that slew him. Here's what you don't understand. When there is rejection going on, sometimes there's somebody standing over here watching. You thought the whole incident was the gospel going forward to this fella right here. And oh, he rejected it horribly. Oh, this is terrible. You thought it was about this, and it wasn't. There's this guy over here watching. It was about him the whole time. Saul stood there watching Stephen, and the seed was sown in Saul's life. And Saul would continue on Stephen's mission and see many, many, many more people come to Christ. There is always people studying you. People watching. Don't let the rejection keep you from being bold with your witness. And letter D, he suffered. Stephen suffered. They stoned Stephen, calling upon God and saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And kneeled down and cried with a loud voice, Lord, lay not this into their charge. And when he had said this, he fell asleep. Well, that's the kind of thing that we say, boy, I'm sure glad that doesn't happen anymore. We live in America and civilized Christianity, you know. Uh, I don't know that we can say that, even in America. Things are changing here. I'm not saying doom and gloom, we're all going to die. But I don't believe that any of us should, should, should think of this as past tense. Certainly not in the scope of world missions, it's not past tense. Right now, today, Christians somewhere died for their faith. But he was willing to do that because he had already died. You know, it's not so hard to die for the Lord. I've never done it. But uh, it's, it's, it's not so hard to die for the Lord when you're already dead. That's what Paul said. I die daily. I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. 
How many times did Paul write in his epistles about dying? It's not so hard to die if you're already dead. You're already that surrendered, that dead to self and sin. Uh, you know, that consecrated to Christ. But many of us, the reason this is so hard for us is we are so alive. We're so in love with our lives, with our plans, with our wishes, with our will. And therefore, this seems horrifying to us. You know, the truth is, folks, if, if in going out to Ann Arbor and witnessing this week could mean that some of us would be stoned to death. Think of it. Piles of stones dotting Ann Arbor, blood trickling out. I'm sorry to be gross. That's what happened here. Think of it. If, if that's what it was. Oh, someone witnessed there. Oh, wow. You're driving along. Oh, there's a pile of stones. Someone, wow, boy, somebody witnessed there. If that's what it meant, I guess I could understand a little fear and trepidation that tract racked on the way out looms large. Do I really want to pick some up? Do I really want to hand this out? What could this mean? The truth is, folks, we're not facing that at this point in Ann Arbor. And yet it's so hard for us to witness. You would think that must be the stakes. It's not. With Stephen, it was the stakes, and yet he was willing, willing to go and offer himself and even be sacrificed. The Bible says, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. That's what Stephen did. He prayed for them and, and, and uh, uh, said, don't let this sin be to their charge. And he had that peaceful home going. He made a difference. You say, well, why not thousands saved in Acts 7 like thousands were saved in Acts 4 and Acts 2? Thousands were saved in Acts 7 through Paul. Paul took that with him, and thousands were saved. St Stephen's sacrifice was not lost. What does it take to stop you and I from witnessing? Unfortunately, it's convicting. It's, it's, it's far easier for you and I to say, nah. But may God help us to make a difference. We need to be witnessing in Ann Arbor and the surrounding communities and be faithful. There are people that God is preparing to hear the witness from your mouth. Let's trust God for those opportunities. Lord, thank you for this uh, example from Stephen. <clears throat> and I pray that you'd help each one of us to walk by faith in this area. And Lord, that you would use us as gospel witnesses to see people saved and added to your church for your glory. Give us victory th this night and even this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Oh Lord, we pray for Brother Jeff and his family. Give safety in the travel. Thank you, Lord, for them. Give them a great week and, and continued leadership in the days ahead. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Thanks for joining us here tonight. God bless you.